CEE Central Europe Explained An IDM podcast series powered by Erste Group Episode 20 Looking Beyond Which Future for Central and Southeast Europe and the EU with Commissioner Johannes Hahn Hello everybody and welcome back to CEE Central Europe Explained. My name is Sebastian Schäfer. I am the Managing Director of the Institute for the Danube Region and Central Europe in Vienna. Today, for our final episode of this podcast series, we are going to focus on the future perspectives in the region, especially regarding the EU budget and the recovery fund. For this, I'm very glad and honored to welcome Dr. Johannes Hahn, European Commissioner for budget and administration. Hello, Commissioner Hahn, and thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you very much for the invitation to speak to your friends in the region. Before we start, let's bring a bit of context here. A year ago, the COVID-19 pandemic started around the world and European member states responded differently to the outbreak. Especially during a summit of the EU member leaders in March 2020, Germany and the so-called Frugal Four refused to join the European Recovery Initiative, showing once again the disparities of approaches towards the EU budget. However, in July 2020, the European Council agreed to a historical recovery fund, Next Generation EU in order to support the member states affected by the pandemic, which will be attached to the regular multi-annual financial framework. Now that it has been ratified by the European Parliament, all 27 EU member states must do so for the decision to enter into force. So far, eight countries approved the new own resources decision, Bulgaria, Croatia, Cyprus, France, Italy, Malta, Portugal, and Slovenia. Commissioner Hahn, regarding What has been done until now and which countries approved the decision is the future prospect regarding the next generation EU and its implementation, especially in the region, something that will positively impact the development? Well, I, I'm sure that there is an impact uh, because, of course, uh, the measures we have now taken in this budget and you have uh, referred to it is uh, uh, mainly uh, uh, addressing uh, EU member states, but I think there is a positive spillover effect, uh, in particular to the region, because we have a lot of uh, instruments which are cross-border available, or we have even increased the budget and uh, also the way how the money is provided to candidate countries, for instance, in the region is now, uh, so they uh, provided on a new basis and a more competitive basis where we focus on certain areas where, so they first come, first serve, is now uh, quasi the, the main principle. Of course, there is a kind of indicative allocation for each country, but in principle, it's, it's even a more merit-based uh, vehicle. There should be uh, a very strong uh, stimulating effect for the region, and uh, it's uh, on all of us, uh, EU member states, but also um, candidate countries, uh, to use uh, these opportunities. So the next generation EU deal is unprecedented and the EU will issue European sovereign bonds. Is this, in your opinion, a first step into the fiscal integration in Europe? No, because, uh, I mean, some people consider this, but um, I have to uh, recall that uh, we were, and we are unfortunately still facing an unprecedented situation 
which uh, needs an unprecedented answer. And this unprecedented answer was given by member states, but also by the union as a whole. Why the union as a whole? Because what the, so to say, crucial is uh, the future functioning of the single market to pick up everywhere in, in all our member states, more or less at the same time, so that the recovery is not only a recovery of some countries, but of all countries, because if it would be only the case in some countries, it would not be really successful and sustainable. That's why we have to, to, to see the broader picture. And of course, we have to compensate to a certain extent the financial firepower of some countries, which, are, which have a, a bigger one than others. But uh, from a European perspective, we need, so to say, a more uniform approach. And this is exactly why this next generation EU um, facility has been created. And uh, this is uh, definitely something which helps um, the European economy to recover, but also to become more resilient, resilient in a way that uh, it is better prepared for the future, more competitive in, in a global um, competition. I'm saying this because there will be another crisis. Nobody knows when and what are the reasons for it, but there will be one. And it's good if um, also those who are traditionally more vulnerable are better prepared. And this is why we are using this opportunity um, uh, not only to help countries to recover as uh, quick as possible, but also to be, become more resilient. Having said this, we have only been able to create this uh, next generation facility by applying a certain article in the, in the Lisbon Treaty, allowing us to do this exactly for such a one-off uh, event. And this is why the whole construction is uh, time-framed, uh, meaning that uh, we have a certain time slot within we can raise the money, but we're also obliged to repay uh, the money uh, within 30 years. But let's see if we are very successful in implementing, in using the funds, it might trigger so to say, new ideas how to further strengthen uh, the European economy, serving people, etc. So for the time being, of course, it's crystal clear. It's a one-off event, but uh, it will, for instance, certainly strengthen the role of the euro as a second global uh, currency. And this is something which also will further foster Europe's role as a political entity, because for many outside the European Union, it's uh, difficult to understand what's the European Union. But if now, so to say, the Union becomes a, a, a global player uh, concerning the issuance of bonds, this automatically triggers more understanding about the political relevance of the Union as a bloc. For instance, I will never forget when I was once talking to a US state secretary and telling him that 80% of uh, uh, national laws of EU member states are based on union law. So it is uh, decisive what is uh, so they, uh, adopted that in the European Parliament and by the European Council, because this uh, 
uh, is finally triggering national legislation. And he was definitely surprised. But I think events or uh, actions like the issuance of bonds will further contribute to a better understanding about uh, so to say, the union as a political block. And this is important to be also a key player uh, on a global scale in, in terms of uh, uh, political decisions, because there are usually two reasons to be a, a strong uh, player. Either you are a military force or you are an economic force or you are both. Europe is definitely an economic force. We don't intend to become a military force. So we have to strengthen this and uh, this um, next generation EU facility and the whole way we are implementing it can really also contribute in that respect. So there are manifold effects of this initiative. Well, when we talk about an economic power and the EU budget, we have also the agreement now on the next multi-annual financial framework 2021 to 2027. Which new challenges, but also opportunities, does this bring to the European Union with regards to Brexit, the need for different allocation of funds, regardless of the pandemic? Is this a framework that um, empowers the European Union to be ready for all the things that you have mentioned in your statement? Definitely, because I think this is something unique. I mean, we know from some countries uh, in the presence, but more in the past that they had uh, five-year plans, but this was always uh, very um, artificial and never worked really out, uh, at least not in the interest of people. Uh, what the union is doing to provide, as it is called, a multi-annual financial framework. And I would like to stress framework, meaning it indicates a budget for seven years, And this is reassuring for many areas. For instance, maybe we will talk later about this cohesion where multi-annuality is absolutely a must in research where um, researchers um, are relying on also multi-annual uh, availability of funds, etc. So this is um, one of the reasons why we are really able to pursue with this budget concrete political goals. And in this uh, current MFF, which consists indeed of the so-called core MFF, which is almost uh, 1,100 uh, billion euro. On top, we have this 750 next generation EU. Why I'm mentioning this again? Because in both uh, sort of say categories or areas, we pursue the same political priorities, uh, Green Deal and uh, digitalization. And this is also extremely important in order to achieve not only our political goals, but by achieving our political goals, we are contributing to the further, as you said, empowerment of the union, uh, make it more resistant, uh, make it more competitive, and less vulnerable. So uh, in both areas, we are using uh, the money to pursue certain political goals. And this is also, if you like, the translation of what I consider the European Commission to be the only think tank in the world with an executive power. 
And uh, I mean, doing this, we we outlay, so to say, our political goals, which are which is endorsed also by our member states. And uh, therefore, I'm very confident that uh, this has a lasting impact, a sustainable impact uh, on the further development of the European Union. Critics often refer to this budget as a piggy bank. It's always about getting the most out of it. And the reason why they are afraid that um, certain values are attached to it might make less use of this budget for certain member states. And um, why is it absolutely necessary to communicate that this idea is false, especially when it comes to the discussion that is going on in civil societies? And uh, maybe you can also link that how it plays into fostering Euroscepticism as this discussion about the multi-annual financial framework always triggers that the EU is slow, the member states do not foster this progress. Um, how can we counter such claims? First, I think uh, it's uh, important to communicate uh, all this on a very broad basis. Yeah? Because uh, what is now rather popular is sometimes a kind of Euro bashing, even by those who at least pretend to be pro-Europeans. And I mean, I think ideally one should be also a European by heart, but even if it's only, so to say, on a very rational basis, uh, I think there is no alternative to a strong European Union. Because if you look at the development of uh, global trade, of uh, development of uh, national economies outside the Union, emerging countries, etc., the portion of the Union in, in the global business uh, um, uh, performance. I mean, even we are still growing, others are growing faster, and our share becomes smaller. And uh, this is why one has to understand to survive or to survive even better demands uh, united uh, activities and uh, consolidated uh, uh, approaches uh, as Europeans opposite to others. So uh, a small country like Austria or many others would not be very competitive and sovereign in, 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 a, in, a, in a global perspective if they are in a standalone position. This is why, by the way, so many which are not yet members of the union are also interested to join the union because it's a protection shield. And it's not uh, giving up on the sovereignty, but it means even gaining or regaining sovereignty, being part of a bigger family where you can co-decide, where you're not only, so to say, shaping decisions, but also taking decisions and having a voice and a vote. And this is uh, why it is so important. And this has to be communicated by each and everybody. Uh, and this leads me to the second point. If you leave all this only to a few European officials, it's too less. So here I definitely expect that uh, national, regional politicians are equally forthcoming when it comes uh, 
to the um, role of the European Union. This is also indispensable if we want to be successful. And finally, I have to admit, I count very much on regions and municipalities in all this because they experience the effects on a daily basis on the ground if concrete projects are implemented with European taxpayers' money. They know exactly what are the benefits, what are the advantages. Uh, and uh, therefore, I also would uh, really invite each and everybody to communicate in a correct manner. Uh, I mean, I would like to see it in an enthusiastic way, but at least to do it and not to, to hide if a certain um, uh, project is inaugurated, that it was mainly financed by the European Union and not by uh, local entities, etc. So, I mean, if there is at least a correct information about what the Union is doing, this would already be a, a quantum leap in terms of uh, better understanding about uh, the effects of uh, European activities. Thank you very much. So when we take all your experiences and all the uh, responsibilities that you had in the regions for enlargement, but now also for the budget, you mentioned already cohesion. What can we expect for European cohesion in the future? And last but not least, which future developments do you expect for our region? Well, I mean, what we know, which is... Uh, And evidence is that in, in times of crisis, there is usually a, a drift uh, between regions. Uh, the, the better ones and uh, the less developments, uh, developed ones are drifting again away. I have seen this 10 years ago. So quasi it's, it's, it's a kind of Sisyphus work to pursue cohesion, meaning to help the less developed ones to catch up but this is uh, important. And as I told you previously, we are in a way a think tank with uh, executive power. And this is why, and if one can compare European commissioners to be quasi European ministers uh, and having a ministry, now we're having for the first time, even at the level of a vice president, a commissioner, Mrs. Dubravka Suica from Croatia, being the commission in charge of demographic changes. And it's not by chance that it is somebody from Croatia because um, in particular, Eastern European countries are more affected by demographic changes in brackets, brain drain than others. And uh, cohesion uh, has to contribute to ideally reverse this brain drain and uh, to work on a better geographical balance because it can't be in our interest that the more dynamic parts of a society are migrating or moving to other parts of Europe and some parts of Europe are then more relying on remittances than others or even relying on remittances. This should be in the 21st century uh, no longer the case that inside Europe We have countries, we have even member states, which are still relying significantly on the remittances of uh, their citizens which uh, or who are working uh, abroad. 
And uh, this is something which I uh, expect from cohesion to contribute uh, to this um, demographic changes. Uh, of course, also uh, on a more general note, across Europe, we have still this uh, pattern that people are moving from the rural um, countryside to the urban uh, um, agglomerations. I see, I see now uh, a certain change due to the COVID uh, pandemic, the increased number of teleworking opportunities. We will see uh, if this is something uh, more permanent or if it's uh, a short-term effect. But what we need in any case uh, is, for instance, a better IT infrastructure in the rural countryside. Uh, and this is also something which has to be afforded by cohesion. But in all this, again, it's important as an overarching principle to pursue our political priorities, Green Deal, transition from um, energy, CO2 intensive uh, uh, production uh, procedures to a, a more CO2 neutral uh, production uh, procedures uh, and uh, also uh, the digitalization, which is uh, even more um, an important issue as we can experience as on a daily basis during this crisis. Thank you very much. Uh, if I just may ask um, an additional question, since the declaration on the Conference on the Future of Europe has just been signed, um, what do you expect from um, the participation of civil society organizations and NGOs, what they can contribute to foster this process that has been just started? Well, the more people are contributing, the more ownership is probably guaranteed. And it's good if uh, people are dealing with the European Union, discussing about the future, assessing the current situation, reflect about the future, uh, uh, let's say, outlook, and what is needed to make the European Union as a whole more effective, more attractive uh, inside and outside. And uh, in that, that uh, way, um, every kind of contribution from uh, civil society organizations, NGOs, individual people, etc., is highly welcomed and appreciated because everybody has a different angle. And the more contributions from different corners we receive, the more we have um, um, a very general overview about uh, what people consider as essential to make the union fit, let's say, for the next decade. Commissioner Hahn, thank you very much for your expertise, your really interesting insights. It was such a pleasure to have you on this podcast. And we take this as a challenge that we continue debating on the future of Europe, and hopefully we can contribute a little bit to the future development here at IDM to the future of Europe. Thank you very much. And uh, yeah, 
I wish you all the best in our own interest, but I know that uh, EDM is contributing already a lot in the past and it's not only contributing, it's really facilitating a lot. And uh, I wish you all the best. And again, I would like to thank you and uh, greetings to your president, Erhard Tosset. We'll do so. Thank you very much, Commissioner Hahn. This was Looking Beyond, the final episode of our podcast series, CEE, Central Europe Explained, powered by Erste Group. Many thanks to our listeners for following this podcast show. A great thing about podcasts is that you do not have to listen to them in real time. So feel free to explore our ACAST library whenever you find time. We also encourage you to become an IDM member and receive more information on Central, Eastern and Southeastern Europe. For details, check our website, www.idm.at. We are looking forward to the next season. See you soon and take care. IDM Podcast. Institut für den Donauraum und Mitteleuropa. Institute for the Danube Region and Central Europe. European Perspectives. Regional Actions. Cooperation and Expertise since 1953.